0: Hello and welcome to The Veer, Vulnerabilis Veer Podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky, And I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. Season two of The Veer, Vulnerabilis Veer Podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Standard and Strange, where the clothes and the people are anything but ordinary, and the motto is own fewer, better things. All right, Albert, we got a... A late night one here. We don't usually do too many of these uh, in the evening, but uh, here we are, um, enjoying it and, and through the out. magic
1: of recording, we're still in 2020 when the rest we're, of the yeah world we're still in 2020, 2020. <laughs> 2021.
0: Yep. So um, yeah, Christmas uh, and you know a lot of holidays just passed up here, and I'm just hoping that you had a, a real nice one. I saw your photos of uh, a very white uh, Christmas up there in the in the Hudson Valley. So how was uh how was your Christmas? It was really white, but then we had torrential downpours,
1: and all of the snow, all eighteen inches of it melted. So we have mud. it's It's just an incredible mess. But my in-laws up near Lake George had thirty two inches wow. of snow.
0: that was. And then I saw Pittsburgh had a lot of snow on mm-hmm. Christmas, yeah, I mean, it rained from uh, the eve till halfway in the morning, and then it stuck around. so it's still in there. and I went on a hike um the other day and it was beautiful. It was a, a good snow hike. It was all packed in there, and it's just ah, it was it was warm and sunny, and it was just a great day to go hiking. Sounds great. Sounds great. Well, um, I'm still
1: in the midst as we record this. I'm still in the midst of vacation, so if I nod off, it's because I'm a lot more relaxed than usual. <laughs> I gotta just say, I want to just come out emphatically and say, not working is better uh, than working. Just having the day off with no no structure issues of your time It's just like. Man, this is heavenly. It's like I think I'll take an hour and a half long bath, or I think I'll watch the entire movie tonight and stay up till two o'clock or whatever. It's really been just so great for my brain to decompress, and uh, it's gonna be hard to get back on the horse. But anyway, whatever. We're not gonna we're not gonna look ahead. We're gonna look only to this evening and chatting with our special guest uh, Tristan Chamberlain, who we're gonna meet in a moment. So uh, did you want to uh, introduce our guest, uh, Adam, in your usual irritable fashion?
0: Tristan Chamberlain is a 39-year-old father of two and the co-creator of the Arcurate blog. He lives in central Ohio and regularly travels between the U.S. and Japan, where his wife is from. Tristan loves denim, anime, skateboarding, and whiskey. Tristan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Welcome.
2: Hey, my pleasure.
0: Oh, man. It's, uh, a lot of things that I like, too. Uh, skateboarding was a, a huge, uh, thing for me growing up. So, uh, I got to ask, um, you know, what, what kind of boards do you like? What do you ride on man? <laughs>
2: uh, so yo, so right now, um, I've got a, uh, a new Santa Cruz VX,
0: nice. um,
2: uh, a Mario McCoy board. So it's a true twin tail setup. So the nose and the tail are the exact same size. Um, I actually, uh, only just started skateboarding again this year. Um, uh, dark secret. I was a rollerblader for like 20 years. (laughs) So, uh, and it's funny enough. That's how I lost my pinky. Um, so you being from Pennsylvania Mm and mentioning that you
0: skate, are you familiar with camp Woodward at all? I was going to ask if you've ever been there. Of course, man. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I
0: was a camp counselor at camp Woodward for, um, I think about
2: like three years. Uh, that's actually how I ended up in Japan. Um, my, uh, one year when I was a camp counselor, one of my campers, his mom was the translator for, um, a Japanese baseball player. And okay. she suggested that I move to Japan after college. Cause it was a great way to pay off student loans.
0: That is super rad. Um, yep. yeah, I always went to, um, Woodward like on the weekends, like off, like the main, um, time when all like the regular campers came in. Cause you know, it's not that far away from me. Um, and yeah, we would do like a, a weekend trip there and just hang out and kind of have the park to ourselves. So
2: it was a weekend. It was a weekend trip that cost me my pinky.
0: <laughs> yeah. So yikes. I guess lead with that story. Jump in and, on the pinky and, story.
2: And, and here's, here's, the funny, here's the funniest part about it too. And I don't know if it's irony or what, but it was also like the first dude weekend I had ever had after having gotten married. So okay. it was like the first time my wife had, you know, trusted me to go out and not be stupid. So, um, a few friends and I got invited to kind of like an old man's weekend at Camp Woodward. Um, and we drove the, from Columbus to Camp Woodward, I think is about like, about like an eight hour drive. Um, and I think it was there all of 45 minutes when I wiped out on one of the resi ramps and my finger got stuck in the resi and it snapped it off. Yikes. Holy and then it smokes. was a nice and then it was a nice 45 minute ambulance wait as the ambulance came from State College. And then a nice 45 minute ambulance ride to State College to be told that my pinky could not be reattached and that I was not allowed to keep it.
0: Oh, and not <laughs> even allowed to keep it. Okay, No,
2: no, no. But I'll have to send you guys the photo of me in the tank top that says I still rollerblade with my severed finger bandaged up uh, that face. Brought to you by morphine. <laughs> yeah.
1: My goodness. Oh, man. In, in, in a Richard Linklater movie, that pinky would be in a jar on your shelf. Where is the pinky?
2: I, they, well, so they actually brought in a state trooper to explain to me why I was not allowed to keep said pinky. Now, this is also after my two friends from Woodward and I did a complete photo session with said severed pinky. Um, I had a photo with it up my nose and like, where's my pinky? Oh, we had one where my friends were trying to find it on the ground. Um, needless to say, they did not find our <laughs> our uh, little um, impromptu photo session with my severed uh, digit. Uh, very entertaining as we did.
1: So how how long did it take your body to get used to not having the pinky? Like how long did they,
2: the worst of the pain last and then... Um, so, I mean, so I went through about like, they tried to fix what was left of it. Um, and then about after three months of it not healing, um, it got really infected and I had to go in for emergency surgery. Um, and, but I was very fortunate. I had a, a phenomenal hand surgeon here at um, Ohio State University work on my hand. Um, there was talks about me getting a full radial recession, which means they, they take um, the entire bone out of your hand. Um, so if the infection had actually spread into my, my, um, my metatarsal in my hand, I would have had to have had it removed. Um, so, uh, I woke up relatively surprised that they did not take, uh, that bone out. So that's why I have like that, that ridge right there, or as my, or as one of my, uh, my friend's uh, daughters called it, my not finger. Cause it moves, but it's not a finger. <laughs> wow. <laughs> my goodness. Fun fact, I could unlock my iPhone with my nub. <laughs>
0: Wow. <laughs> the more, you know, I guess, uh, accessible <laughs> <at> Apple. <laughs> this
2: is one of those
1: times so, where you, we wish we were a visual show so you could actually see the pinky, but you're going to have to go to your feed and yeah, uh, DM, yeah. DM uh, Tristan. If uh, you want to take a look at the pinky, if we yeah. can, because some people don't know, I'll just tell Adam very briefly that you and I just started talking on Instagram. We probably liked a couple of each other's photos. Uh, denim etc but we started talking uh and actually I think you mentioned the podcast so you may have actually you may have actually known about the podcast before I yeah, mentioned Yeah
2: so, so um you had um if memory serves me correct uh, I had posted a rather emo-ish photo of me and my Stetson uh on my uh, on my Instagram page and uh that actually the timing of that actually was uh, quite significant um, I work uh, for a, a very large company, um, and uh, it's a company that has remained open uh, throughout the entire pandemic. And at that time, I want to say it was around about like March or April. Uh, um, I had to shave my beard off uh, so that I could start wearing an N95 mask um, to work um, as safety. Now, it was not required at the time uh, because it being the early dawn of the of COVID. Um, but due to my son's medical condition, um, he is considered immunocompromised. Um, in his particular instance, he doesn't run fevers um, like other people. So with his medical condition, temperature regulation is kind of, he's uh, kind of like a, a lizard. Uh, if it's hot outside, he's hot. If it's cold outside, he's cold. Um, but it also means that if he's fighting off an infection, he doesn't always run a fever. Um, so at that time, um, you know, me going to work and coming home I was a risk to him so I shaved my beard off uh for the first time in I think almost 10 years um so that I could comfortably wear an N95 mask and so that it would actually function properly um otherwise you know my beard would have interfered with it um and which was kind of weird because I have a a beard sponsor <laughs> so I had to let them know that I intended on taking my beard off um, and I had been doing stuff for them for about I have I think I've been providing them with photos of my mug and doing promotional stuff for I think about 8 years now. Wow. Um yeah, so I let them know and they actually were quite supportive about it and I even the very first blog post I ever wrote was about why I decided to um trim my beard off um and that my vanity was not as important as my son's safety.
0: Yeah, I mean hmm talk about sacrifices of, of being a parent, you know, yeah, there's yeah, well, how many, <laughs> how many decisions do you make because of them?
2: <laughs> you know what though? But so like, I was worried how my kids would react to me not having a beard and they did a pretty good job. Cause I, I buzzed off in front of them. And, um, I remember going to my wife uh, who hadn't seen me, like, I think the last time we were, I'd been clean shaved was, um, uh, man, I think like three years into our marriage, when she learned a very important English lesson that there's a difference between trim and shave. <laughs> Um, and she asked me to shave my beard. So I did. And then she looked at me and asked me what I did to my face. Um, and I was like, you meant trim, not shave. Um, so she looked at me, she goes, I go, so what do you think? And she goes, when'd your nose get so big? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, really? Is that the first thing you have to say, when did my nose gets so big. All right.
1: So that I'll going back that. to that picture the, the, of you and the Stetson, very emo, what was, What was the point of that picture? Do you remember? I'm I'm just trying to, all I remember is that we exchanged a couple of messages and then we talked on a video and that's when you told me a little bit about your family's backstory and your son. And I want to set this all up because people don't know the whole story, but I want to, if you don't mind, just very, very.
2: Yeah. I mean, so there was a caption that went along with it and, uh, you had, uh, you had reached out and you said, you know, um, I have a feeling that there's a story behind this and I'd love to talk to you and get to know you some more. I was like, heck yeah, why not? You know, that's, that's kind of like the, uh, the whole point, right. Is to try to convey, um, through, uh, I mean, through Instagram, through photos and things like that, you know, emotions. Um, and at that time it was just kind of like, there was a lot of uncertainty going on. Um, there was, uh, me getting used to how tiny my face was. Um, there's a lot of things going on at that time and you and I actually had a fantastic conversation. Uh, it was another nighttime conversation. I think we talked for about like two hours. Yeah, It, like was, a, about
1: it was a long conversation and I didn't take notes. I wasn't even like thinking, Oh, you know, we're going to do a show or anything like that. It was just, I was just very impressed with your story and just a lot of what you were telling me was, you know, not novel to me to the extent that I didn't know anything at all about your, the, 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 health issue that your son has and and but i want to just go back to set up just, you know you're originally from ohio that you're
2: you're native ish. Not, not 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 really um so we moved to ohio my freshman year of high school uh, so i was a military kid which was the best thing that could have ever happened to me um uh, as a result i'm a social chameleon you know a lot of times when people find out you're a military kid the first thing they want to say to you is, is like oh i'm sorry like what are you sorry about i got to reinvent myself eight times. And it was before the internet. I could literally like get bullied, be a nerd, do something stupid, get into trouble, whatever. Be like, you know, it's cool. In three years, my dad's going to get relocated. We're going to move. And I could just move to another state, move to another country. And I'd have the opportunity to start all over again. Um, I don't think that there are many people, um, especially not today, that have the ability to drop off the face of the earth and start all over again especially not with social media the way it is nowadays. Um, so um, we had moved to Ohio, like I said, my freshman year of high school. Um, after college, I decided I wanted to get as far away from Ohio as possible, and Japan was pretty far away. Um, and then when I was in Japan, I met my wife, um, and we decided Why, why to come- Japan? Why Japan? Um, So like I said, when I was at camp counselor, um, I had that camper who's like, I was, you know, it it was my freshman year. I was trying to figure out what do I want to do as a major. And she told me that learning another language was a great way to boost your career. That Japanese was a pretty, um, wasn't a a super hard language to learn to speak. It's a very difficult language to read and write, but speaking, it's not too hard. Um, It's not too difficult to sound native, uh, since there's no accents like there are in, say, like Italian and Spanish. Um, so she suggested that I take Japanese. So I came back to uh, college and um, it was registering for classes my sophomore year and couldn't get into Japanese. So I took it my junior year. Uh, it turned out we actually had a pretty good Japanese program. I uh, did two years of Japanese, majored in international relations and then decided that uh, I might as well move to Japan and uh, continue on with uh, what I thought was going to be my career as a uh, uh, an employee for the State Department.
1: Hmm. And you're in Japan. And is that where you discovered the, uh, the love of denim and uh, heritage wear and all that? It, was that something yeah. you picked up there?
2: It's, yeah, it's exactly how I picked it up there. You know, um, Japan is such a, a fascinating place. You know, I, I was always into fashion. I think being a skater, um, there's a certain amount of vanity, uh, and how you look. So, you know, if you're going out for a photo shoot, I, you know, you always want to make sure that you look cool. Uh, not just in doing your trick, but then also how you're dressed. You know, you you are oftentimes a trendsetter within that little micro-community. Um, I mean, if you look at how much skateboarding is like now, skateboarding influences fashion and style, um, there's a lot that goes into it. So I'd always had a, uh, a passion for fashion, no pun intended. Um, but when I moved to Japan, I guess that's when I had more of like my style awakening. Um, it was... So fascinating was the first time I ever lived anywhere where I could could open a GQ or I could open a, a fashion magazine and I could literally see an advertisement for something or see a product recommended in the pages of that magazine and then lift my head up and look across from me and there could be somebody on the train wearing that jacket or wearing those shoes or I knew exactly where that store was. You know, it was the first time I ever went to a, a Dolce & Gabbana. It was the first time I visited a Louis Vuitton store. Like, I had all of these luxury brands that were, um, that were at my fingertips that I never had access to um, living in the Midwest. Um, and it was while I was there and bebopping around um, different neighborhoods and things of that nature when I came across raw denim for the first time. And when you when you headed to Japan, you knew nobody there? Not a single soul. Nope. I uh, I went over and worked for a English as a second language company called Geos and I worked for their Geos Kids division. Um and I taught children ages 10 months to 13 years of age conversational English. It was the best just graduated from college job ever.
1: I mean it's just remarkable to to head to Japan by yourself not knowing Anybody there? I, I I just completely admire that you did that. I went to Tokyo just once, and I went with a family that was half Japanese, so I got the whole, you know, treatment being taken around and get had uh, you know that introduction to life in Tokyo kind of thing. And I so I completely just take my hat off to you and think that's the coolest thing that you just picked up as a kid, and, you know, right out of school and go to Japan. Um, just incredible that you did it.
2: Well, I think that, you know, had I not been a military kid and had I not been so accustomed to just like picking up and going to someplace where you don't know anybody or anything, you know, um, I think that's what prepared me to be able to go over there. It's also what made me socially inept to do so, Um, because, you know, anytime you move to a different country, you expect things to be different. Um, I think the first time I ever actually had real culture shock was when I moved from the East Coast to the Midwest, you know, because we went from living in places like Boston. I lived in Staten Island, New York, Shaolin, what's up? Wu Tang, forever. Um, <laughs> um, and then we lived in uh, DC, Washington, DC. And then my dad was uh, stationed at the Naval Academy. Uh, when he retired from the Navy, um, he ended up getting a job that brought us to Ohio and brought us to the Midwest. And up until that point, I'd always lived and, in coastal cities, military bases. Um, when I went to school in New York, you know, we got off Christian and Jewish holidays, so um, I didn't know that that wasn't normal anywhere else. You know, I went to school with, and New York was great. I went to school with Christians and and Jewish people, and and uh, and and Muslims, and that's when I learned that there was a distinct difference between Catholic and Protestant. You know, it was it was a really interesting place to live. Um, and then we moved to rural America. Like real America, you know, um, and I don't mean to offend people when I say that. I, I think that can be taken, a, uh, taken the wrong way. I, I think um, Central Ohio is more authentic to what America really is outside of our metropolitan areas and our metropolitan cities. And I think that it's easy to take for granted um, how diverse the cities are, um, but then also how different the central United States is from everywhere that I've been exposed to. And that was the first time I ever had culture shock.
1: Well, that it's it, it, interesting because that culture shock is very much sort of a of a part of a larger culture shock that's happening in our country of recognizing kind of the, the multiple Americas that don't understand each other quite so much. And I th- I think that's really I think that's very powerful that you found that that uh, moving to central Ohio to be such a, a big cultural shift uh, coming from a coastal city. So that, that's something we can go back to. I do want to go back to Japan. Now you, you meet your wife in Japan. Your, who, the yeah. your woman who became your wife. Tell us how you guys met. My space. Nice.
2: I heard about that. No, wait, 100%. So um, I lived in rural Japan. Um, and while I was there, um, I got sick. Uh, and since this is a men's show, uh, I have no problem saying this. I had a prostate infection. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. That's which not, is, that uh, no, 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 no. And bless you if you've never dealt with one, cause they don't go away. Um, I, um, what had happened was, is I had, uh, I got a, <laughs> it's a little personal. I got a UTI while I was out there and medicine is approached a little bit differently in Japan than it is in the United States. Um, And they tend to be a little bit more um, conservative when it comes to dosing antibiotics. Um, And I was given the right antibiotic, but I wasn't given an antibiotic that by Western standards would have been adequate for my height and weight. So it didn't get rid of the infection. It just tapered it down and it went from being just a standard UTI and then it spreading to my prostate. (laughs) So I actually ended up having to fly back to the United States to get medical treatment. Um, however, before that happened, um, I had an Australian friend of mine that had uh, moved back to Oz. He had met my wife online and I was talking to him. I was like, man, I'm having a hard time finding a doctor that can help me out. I need to find someone who can meet me halfway, like with between my, their English and my Japanese, and we can meet somewhere in the middle. Um, and he was like, I actually met this, this really cool chick on MySpace." Her English is fantastic. She studied in England, and she works at a national hospital in Osaka, which was uh, the closest metropolitan city to where I lived, which uh, was about a a 45-minute train ride from where I lived to central Osaka. So I got on MySpace, and I looked her up, and I was like, hey, you don't know me, but... My friend Adam says, you're really cool and you can help me find a doctor. Now, granted, this was a, the early days of the internet and it was way more innocent. and meeting strangers online was not nearly as scary as we learned it was. <laughs> but almost every friend that I made in Japan, I met online before I met them yeah, in real life. Well, that
1: was just extraordinary too, that you were in rural Japan, that you were not in Tokyo. I mean, that's, that's an
2: even bigger, bigger uh, leap. So, yeah. So like when you sign up for these, the back in the day, when you signed up for these Aikawas is what they were called, eikawa, Um, you always had like, you had options. Like you could pick like, where do you want to live? Um, and everybody always picks Tokyo or Kyoto or um, like Osaka. Uh, my Japanese professor told me, he goes, really what you want to do is they need more people in rural areas. So pick a rural area that is closer to one of those cities Uh, And not actually in that city, and you have a better opportunity to be close to where you actually want to live. So I had originally picked um, just outside of Kyoto, just outside of um, Osaka, an area uh, in Nara. And then I had picked outside of Tokyo, and I ended up getting placed um, in um, Nara Prefecture. Um, So uh, that's the, in Japan, you've got your states and your cities. So it's kind of like New York City and New York State. So I lived in Ken, which was the state, and I, the city I lived in was called Sakurai. Um, and that was actually really cool. Um, I was a 45-minute train ride to Osaka, Japan. I was a 20-minute train ride to, um, to Nara, which was actually the original capital of Japan. Um, and that's where the Daibutsu is, which is a giant Buddha. Um, it's also where all of the uh, – it's the city with the deer. So they're a deer that roam the entire city. They're considered sacred animals. And I mean, they're everywhere. Um, and you can feed them. And they have a beautiful ceremony where they trim down their antlers every year. Um, and then to Kyoto, I think it was about a, a three-hour train ride to Kyoto. Um, and it was actually living there that I got introduced to my first Japanese denim brand, which was Evisu. Um, As it turns out, two train stops up from where I lived was a town called Kashiba, and south of that was Kashihara Jingu, and that's the hometown of the founder of Evisu. So I was taking Japanese classes down there, and on my way to the community center, I walked past this very odd building (laughs) with jeans in it and everything, um, and I walked past it every I want to say maybe like four or five times before I actually went inside. And that was my first introduction to Japanese denim.
1: Wow! So you meet you meet up with your wife and your the woman who became your wife later on. Her name is Tomimi. Uh, Tomomi. 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 Yep. And and was it love at first sight? and You guys just knew like, wow. We just no. I mean, at first we
2: were we were best friends. I mean, we we hung out all the time. We did everything together. Um, it was towards the end of my stay in Japan that our relationship blossomed and, uh, she's regretted it ever since.
1: And, and so your, your time in Japan
2: was going to end just because of the terms of your work. Via- yeah. the terms of my contract. Yeah. Uh, so they wanted me to, how, so how long had you been there? Um, just shy of three years. Um, they had wanted me to become a substitute teacher, but, um, the, the Gaijin community. So, uh, so for those who don't know. Um, if you live in Japan and you are not Japanese, you're considered Gai Kokujin, or gaijin. So that's just not a f- just not Japanese. So all foreigners, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, Hispanic, gaijin, just clumped into one group, gaijin. Um, and through like the gaijin community and all the different English schools there were, um, because at the time Japan was going through a bit of an English school boom, there was a lot of talks about how, um, the big two Geos and Nova were having some financial issues. So I decided that that was probably the best time to, uh, end my contract and move back to, uh, the United States and, and like, no joke. I think it was about like six months after I'd moved back to the United States, um, Nova and Geos, the company I worked for all went bankrupt and actually left thousands of, of English, native English speakers, Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians, Americans, literally stranded in the country. Um, people who had worked from, for, uh, the Nova company, there was rumors that people had gone two months without receiving pay that their, um, that their apartment, um, rent was not being paid. Um, they were left without money. There was no way to get out of the country. Um, Australia actually put together, they had so many expats in Japan that worked for those companies that they actually arranged to fly them home from Japan back to Australia um, for free.
1: And you returned to Ohio? Uh,
2: no, actually, uh, I came back to the United States. Um, my uh, Right before I graduated college, my parents left Ohio. Um, my kid brother did not did not do well in rural Ohio. Um, he got, he got teased a lot. I mean, you know, he's a, a, skinny, smart, brilliant child who's bad at football. And so where did they move to? So they ended up moving to, uh, to North Carolina, which is where my dad's family is. Um, and they moved to the Piedmont triad. Um, so when I came back to the United States, my parents had been living in North Carolina for about four years. So I was in North Carolina for a hot minute. um, And then I moved to DC uh, to try to pursue uh, a job with the foreign service department.
1: So when did you and Tomomi get together and make it a thing? Uh,
2: So I was about like the last four or five months that we were in Japan. And then I knew that she was a, excuse me, she was the person I wanted to marry. So I kind of proposed, kind of proposed to her uh, before I left. Um, and we did a long distance thing for a year uh, with her in Japan and me in the United States applying for a fiancé visa. Um, and then in 2008, on August 23rd, uh, we got married. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Yay! And then on Christmas Eve, I got laid off from my job.
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs>
2: There's a lot of ups
1: and downs. I tell you, yeah. we made the timeline and, and uh, with, with this, with this interview, but uh, <laughs> now, how, you'd been together then with your wife, how long before the birth of your first son?
2: Well, let's see. We've been, we just celebrated our 12th wedding anniversary. Um, so we had been together for about, uh, about almost about, uh, almost six years. Um, Tomomi and I had tried for five years. Um, My wife and my wife, I say my wife and I, but you know how it goes. Um, We miscarried, um, I want to say, I think three, three times um, before Sora was born. So um, he's our rainbow baby. Um, Also, before he was born, we had discovered that he had a hole in his heart. Um, So we were actually prepared for him to go to Children's Hospital here in Columbus uh, directly for heart surgery when he was born. Um, a week before he was born, uh, we went in for our echocardiogram, um, and we, he learned that the hole in his heart had actually closed up, um, had healed itself, um, and we were told that he was a miracle. Um, it's also how we decided to name him Sora. So any of your listeners who are big Kingdom Hearts fans, <laughs> I named him after the lead character in Kingdom Hearts uh, and in that video game, uh, he is fighting to rescue his friends from the Heartless. So I thought that was a pretty great name. That shouts out the back door really well too.
0: Sora.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Sora, get out. So,
1: so Sor- Sora is born, and mm-hmm. there's this miracle moment where, my God, he's okay. How quickly yeah, it, did you discover that he had some some health complications? Uh, about five minutes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, he, uh, the moment he was born, he had a hard time breathing. Uh, then he was immediately rushed off to, uh, the NIC unit, uh, for what they, ca- for what they were calling, uh, failure to thrive. So anytime a child is, um, diagnosed with failure to thrive, that basically means there's something wrong with your kid. We just don't know what it is yet. So they typically diagnose your child with failure to thrive. Um, so he was in the NIC unit for two weeks. Um, And while we were there, um, the nurses were, there was a, it's really serendipitous, really. Um, Two nurses were discussing my son while the geneticist from the Prader-Willi Clinic um, at Children's Hospital happened to be making rounds. Uh, And she overheard the nurses talking about Sora. Um, So she came over and took a look at his chart. Um, and thought that he had some of the symptoms of the condition that she specialized in. So she introduced herself to my, uh, my wife and my mom at the time they were in the NIC unit. Um, and basically said, you know, I'm a geneticist from children's hospital. Um, I, I overheard some nurses talking about your son. Um, he has some of the symptoms of the condition that I specialize in. Um, I don't think he has it, uh, but I think he's a great candidate for, um, doing a genetic profile on. Um, and we can do a genetic test to see if we can rule anything out. Um, so we went through the, with the, uh, the gene testing, um, and, uh, at the end of his second week on the day that he was set to be released from the NIC unit was the day that we got his diagnosis. Um, and I made the very uh, foolish mistake of quickly Googling what it was before we went to the hospital. Uh, to, uh, bring him home. Um, and what should have been an extremely joyous, um, occasion, uh, turned out to be a very bittersweet one. Um, when you Google Prader-Willi syndrome and you get on YouTube, um, anybody who decides to take that journey, um, after hearing this story, um, what you're going to see is the absolute worst case scenarios, like the, the worst possibilities. and um, it will it will shake you, especially if that's something that you're suddenly being told that your child has. Um, where we are with my son's condition nowadays um, is not where those people are. Um, they, like the videos that you're going to see are uh, predate you know um, a lot of the research that's been done. A lot of uh, it predates human growth hormone as a um, as a treatment. It predates what we know about dietary needs. A, a whole um, Uh, multitude of things
1: basically it's a is just generally speaking a developmental condition where the body is not developing in various areas at at yeah at a certain level and that that can vary dramatically now is what you're telling us can vary dramatically by case but also it's dramatically impacted by by various treatments and various uh, things that are happening
2: Yeah. So, uh, so he has a chromosomal deletion. So, uh, he's missing chromosome 15 from me. Um, and what that is, is it's weird kids with Prader-Willi syndrome when they're born go from barely being able to gain weight and growing very slowly to sometime between the ages of five and 10, suddenly ballooning in weight and having horrible weight issues and uncontrollable, um, hunger. Um, so basically what happens is the hypothalamus quits functioning. Um, and the hypothalamus is the command center for your body. It tells you you're hot, it tells you you're cold, it tells you when to go through puberty, and it tells you when your stomach is full. Um, with people with Preto willi syndrome, basically what it's like, um, and the best analogy I can give is we know the hypothalamus isn't damaged. We know the hypothalamus is healthy because it was working. So I always think of it as kind of like imagine you have, a light in your house and you have a brand new light bulb in it the light was working for the first five years you lived in the house but now suddenly the light switch doesn't turn the light on you've had an electrician come to the house and you know the wiring going to the light works you know the light bulb is brand new you know electricity is going into the house but for some reason you cannot find the right breaker switch to turn on to make that light work again and that's kind of how prader-willi syndrome works.
0: Yeah, that's so tough man just you know ha- having that in your life um you know whenever um i read the article and and uh albert was uh, introducing you i mean that was the the first thing i thought of is like what wh- like how did you feel like with like just that knowledge like the first time it it hit you and like how was like the conversation with your wife and and the family? Cause that's just not like a, that's not like a, an, an easy one, you know? Yeah. He kind of, well,
2: so, I mean, we had a lot of things we had to deal with, you know, so one um, we have cultural differences. So my wife is Japanese, her family's Japanese. Um, So kind of having to um, explain it to her her side of the family, but um, the immediate, uh, sensation was he's missing a chromosome from me. So I did this to him was the first thing that went, went through my head that, that he was going to have this, this horrible life and that it was my fault. And I did this to him. Um, and, you know, and then you learn more about the condition and then, you know, it, sometimes it is the father's fault. Sometimes it's because the mother's egg rejects it or they're, there's two chromosomes in the egg um and you go through this where like you know my wife blamed me I blamed myself then she blamed herself then she blamed me then I blamed her it's just this kind of like this roller coaster ride of like until you have this realization that it's it's we're not neither of us are to blame it's 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 a fluke it's a it's a programming mishap you know it 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 could happen to anybody you know it's it's in reality, um, if it wasn't for modern science and if it wasn't for the NIC unit and my son being, you know, tube fed and put on oxygen and all these things, he would have never survived. You know, Mother Nature didn't want him to survive. Um, and he did. And in reality, the fact that he's here is a, is the real miracle. You know, there's all the things that that were counted against him. So, you know, my wife and I... We we view our we view him in a completely different light than I think most parents really look at their children because when you really think about it, he shouldn't have survived, but he did, and and that 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 alone makes him a miracle.
1: In in October, the Columbus Dispatch did this beautiful story about you and your son Sora, and talking about how sk- skateboarding had become this this beautiful new shared. Uh, experience for the two of you, you being a skateboarder, now seeing your young son doing it, a form of physical therapy as a form of learning other lessons about life. But in this article, you said, um, um, you were quoted as saying, uh, every new parent has this fantasy of what it's going to be like to have a child. And sometimes life punches you in the face, but having a special needs child has been the most rewarding thing in my entire life because it taught me to quit worrying about things I can't control. And I got a little choked up just reading that. So I can't even imagine how choked up you were saying that. Um, could you please, <laughs> where, wow, where did that come from? Is that from the experience of, of now five years with your son and the ups and downs and the
2: learning? Uh, yeah, 100%. Um, so there was this crossroads that I came to um, while trying to, to process um, what life was going to be like. Um, it, every, every, it, it's, it's interesting when you talk to couples who have special needs children, you have, there's always this dichotomy about how the parents initially kind of go. And for me, it, I, I had this realization that I could I could either dwell on the things that I couldn't change and dwell on how hard things were gonna be. Or I could just choose to not be a sad sack and, and, and just I, – I had this realization. It's like I can't change my son's condition, but I can change my perspective on it. I can't control that my son has this medical condition. I can't control that there's no cure, just like I have no control over the sun rising and the sun setting. But what I do have control over is, is, I could choose to be the best parent imaginable. I had a choice. I could either choose to be a sad sack or I could choose not to be. Um, I often have a hard time relating to other special needs parents because I, you'll never hear me complain about my son's medical condition. Uh, you'll never hear me complain about my life. You'll hear me complain that being a parent is hard because I feel like that in general is true. I don't think it, it doesn't matter if you have a typical child or a special needs child, being a parent is the most selfless and selfish thing you'll ever do. And it's hard 100%, but I will never blame my son's condition for any challenges that I come across as a parent. Um, that's just, just a cop out. You know, um, it, it frustrates me. You know, I have a, a child whose condition genetically predisposes him to being morbidly obese um, and the biggest challenge being a prader parent is changing your dietary habits. Uh, I had to change the way I looked at food. Food is not meant to be enjoyed. Food is something that you eat to survive. You don't drink water because you like drinking water. You drink it because if you don't, you die. You know, so giving up foods, changing our diet was not a big deal for me because that's what it meant to be a parent for this child. Um, and... I often found that the support groups online for my son's condition was just a perpetual pity party about how we can't have cookies or my husband is upset that he can't have cake or my parents don't understand why my son just can't have uh, a lollipop or all this stuff. It, it really brought me down. And I was like, that's, I, that's, I can't live that life. Um, and and it's a bit of a ramble, but you know, I've got all this going on, and and that's that didn't just change my life with Sora; it's changed my life in general. You either choose to accept that you have ownership for your mistakes and the behaviors that you have, or you choose to believe that you don't have any control over it. You know, when when I have associates that that tell me that you know, uh, well, it wasn't my fault; I was late. You know, yada 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 happened. I was like, that's great. That's a life lesson that you didn't know you needed to learn. You know, you have a choice right now. You can either change your habits and make sure that you start leaving the house early and you never have to worry about being late again, or you can choose to not take ownership and say, well, it wasn't my fault. It was the train's fault or it was a car accident's fault. And I'm not to be blamed. There's this, uh, nobody ever wants to take ownership for the things that they have control over. Um, And it really changed my perspective on what do I have control over? What habits can I change? Um, How can I view things differently? I started uh, taking ownership for all my bullshit. If I screwed up, if I messed up at work, it was like, yep, I did that. Nobody else's fault. 100% ownership. Um, If I give directions to an associate and they don't understand it. It's not their fault. It's my fault because I didn't explain it to them in a way that they needed to be explained. I didn't put it in a way that they could understand it. So that's not their fault that they didn't understand it. It's my fault because I didn't explain it well enough. Um, And throughout this self-discovery about um, taking ownership for what I have control over, since I can't control my son's condition, um, another family I had met in California sent me this really great poem, um, mm-hmm. or a short story, however you want to interpret it called, um, a trip to Holland. And it describes being a special needs parent like this, uh, being a special needs parent is like planning a trip to Paris. Your parents have been to Paris. Your brother and sister have been to Paris. Your best friend from college has been to Paris. Everybody, you know, at some point has been to Paris. So you and your partner decide to finally plan a trip to Paris and you spend months getting ready and you buy all of the books and you practice the language and you study everything that you can and you get your bags packed the night before and you're ready for the flight. And then the time comes and you get in the car, and you drive to the airport and you check all the bags in, and you've done everything right. And you've double checked all the paperwork and you've got your passports and you've got your tickets and you get on the airplane and then you settle in for a very long flight and then at some point the plane lands and over the loudspeaker the stewardess says welcome to holland like holland we're not supposed to go to holland we were supposed to go to paris why are we not going to paris every everybody we know has been to paris nope you're in holland and the circumstances that you're in that's where you're going to be you can't go to paris and now you have to choose to live in Holland. And and you're gonna tell your parents about it. And they're not gonna understand what it's like to live in Holland, because they've never lived in Holland. They've only ever been to Paris. So you have two choices. You could either spend your entire time in Holland and dwell on the fact that you don't know the language and you don't know the culture, and it's not where you intended to be, and it's not how you imagined to be, or you could choose to learn to speak Dutch and you could maybe start taking notice of the tulips and the windmills and the Rembrandts. And over time, you'll learn to love living in Holland just as much as you would have loved living in Paris.
0: Yeah. Well, I can say that the Dutch are awesome. Uh, I've lived there and they're great people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, uh, That's a, a great way to put it of just total just smashing of expectations um and yeah. just a complete different realization um and yeah it just seems that that's trickled into so many other parts of your life that has actually made it better um and where what I like how it kind of brings everything full circle is that Sora's skateboarding now he's dropping in you know he's hitting mm-hmm. ramps um he's having fun and you know this is normal for him. This is his yeah. life. He doesn't know a life without this condition.
2: No, he, so he doesn't.
0: Is life, you know, abnormal for anyone else?
2: It it really shouldn't be. You know, it's, it's, there's no reason like, you know, one of the things that, that frustrated me was all the doctors that told us all the things that Sora wouldn't do, you know, like, you know, well, he probably won't be able to go to school like normal kids and he won't be able to walk like normal kids. Um, he won't be able to do this and he he won't, he might not be able to do this and he might be able to do that. And, um, I, I hate this idea of people deciding for me what my son will and will not do and what he is and is not capable of doing. That's not for me to decide. That's not for a teacher to decide. That's not for a doctor to decide. That's for him to decide, you know, um, I, my, my time at Woodward, I think also kind of played into that. I remember we had, um, a camper when I was there, he ended up, his name's like, he goes by wheels uh, and he was the, uh, he's the wheelchair stunt guy for Nitro Circus. He is the first person to ever do a backflip in a wheelchair. And I remember when he came to camp, um, learning about him and learning that, you know, his dad was like, well, why can't he go in the skate park? What's the worst that could happen? He can't walk. Yeah, (laughs) you know? So, I mean, so the reason he could do a backflip on a wheelchair was because nobody told him that he couldn't do it. So why should I be the one to tell my son that he can't skateboard? If he wants to stand on a skateboard and try going down the driveway, God willing, let's see what happens. You know, and, and I, uh, I'm a big fan of fighting. And one of my favorite quotes is from Mike Tyson. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, so for me, that's what it's like to be a special needs parent. When you have a parent, you have this fantasy of what being a parent's going to be like. And sometimes you get punched in the face, what you choose to do after you punch. That's what determines whether or not you'll succeed or not,
1: besides the lessons that you probably picked up from your dad and military, the military life that probably seeped into your into your own life, I'm just curious some of the other inspirations and influences. Why do you think, you were able to make that transition to surrendering a little bit and letting go of the things you couldn't control. What do you think? Pre, was there anything uh, in your upbringing? Any anything in your schooling? Uh, did did you have an inclination? Were you just a person always looking for a positive, optimistic approach to life? Anyway, and
2: this was just an, another. I mean, honestly, like I think there's two things, right? One was um, you know growing up skateboarding and rollerblading and learning tricks uh taught me really important things in life it taught me that you're not always going to be good at things right away and that the only way that you're going to get good is by failing and then trying all over again you know what makes you successful is not not being good right it's it's uh, how do i always put i always tell my uh Uh, I'll say associates because being a mentor is a big thing for me. But I always tell people, you are not your failures. What you choose to do after you fail is what you are. So you have a choice. When you fail, you can either change and keep trying or you could just give up. And in skateboarding and in rollerblading and in anything as extreme sports or gymnastics, failure is a part of it you're going to fail. You're going to rack yourself. You're going to break an arm. You're going to rip a pinky off. And what you choose to do after that happens determines how far you'll progress. You know, you break your arm and you're like, well, I'm never skateboarding again. Well, that's it. You're never skateboarding again, or you break your arm and it gets better. And you're like, I'm going to go and I'm going to land that trick." I think that tenacity of taking slams and trying over and over again, um, really, uh, Kind of just ingrained, you know, into me that failure happens. Get up off the ground, dust yourself off, and do it again. Um, Also, like leading up to my son, I I I feel like I I was put through the ringer. Um, I feel like if my wife and I hadn't experienced what we had experienced up to his birth, I don't think we would have ever been mentally prepared to have a child. You know, so um, my wife and I went through a year long process of trying to get. Um a visa set up so that she could come to the United States, get married in the United States, and stay in the United States with me. Three months after we got married, um, I got laid off from um, a job selling steel in Detroit. Um, it was a job where I was making a lot of money. And suddenly I wasn't making any money. Um, and on Christmas Day, we had to fly home to Japan for a second wedding reception. Um, when we got back, I was unemployed for 16 straight months. Um, you know, you, you grow up and you're told, go to college, get a degree, learn a foreign language, live in another country, do all these things. You'll never have a hard time getting a job. And here I was, I had done all these things. I'm newly married and I can't find a job. Um, I can't tell you how many interviews I had gone to, how many second interviews I went to, um, and how many times I had to tell my wife that I couldn't get a job. And how many times she and was like, why? Why can't you get a job? Why are you not good enough? Um, all that self-doubt that you go through. Um, 2008 was a tough time for a lot of people. And I can totally empathize with how so many people didn't make it out of 2008. And... Uh, just not just completely broken and shattered. I understand why so many people, you know, self-destructed and turned to drugs and alcohol and, and and so many other things. Um, Because um, when you're constantly being rejected and then you're constantly trying to explain to a person why you're being rejected and why you're not good enough, it, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, And every single day I woke up, I applied for jobs. I suited up. I went to interviews. I printed paper, I printed out resumes on good paper. I did all the things that you were told to do. Um, and I eventually got to the point where, um, uh, I'd actually, uh, had gotten a job from a video resume that had been aired on the news, then lost that job. Cause that company went out of business, got another job, lost that job. Cause that company went out of business. Um, and eventually got to the point where I was so desperate for a job. I, uh, I talked to a uh, skating buddy of mine who at the time worked for a giant Eagle uh, supermarkets. And he jokingly said to me, hey, man, if you need a job, I've got an open position in the deli. And I was like, I'll take it. And I, I worked in a deli for three months. And I honestly believe had I not taken that deli job, I would have never gotten the job that I got after that. Um, I feel like it, it, in the interview process, it showed that I was a person willing to work period. Um, and then had a, a, interesting career with, uh, with Verizon wireless for a while. Um, and then that job didn't turn out the way I expected it. Um, and then I ended up at JP Morgan chase, uh, during the mortgage boom. Um, and it was while I was at JPMorgan Chase, this is great. So while I was at JPMorgan Chase, my wife miscarried twice. I ripped off my finger. I broke my foot. My grandfather died. My family dog died. Um, and then I lost my job and was unemployed again, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, so there I was no job missing a finger broken foot, um, dealing with the death of my grandfather, who was a, a big part of my growing up. Cause he lived with me all throughout high school, um, with somebody that I looked up to, uh, and then the rub salt in the wound: the family dog died. Um, I feel like had I, my wife and I not gone through all the things that we went through. And I feel like had I not survived that, that rock bottom that I hit, I wouldn't have been mentally prepared for what it was going to take to have a special needs child. I'm not a overtly religious person, but I'm a spiritual person and I believe the universe acts in certain ways. And I feel like that was a, that was like a test. That was a, a, look, this is what suck is. This is what rock bottom is. This is what despair is. This is what depression is. This is what anger is. This is what, this is what Suck is and pulling myself out of that hole, continuing to be positive, continuing to believe things would get better if I just kept working harder, I feel like that that all of that just tempered me and made me mentally tough enough to accept what life could be like for the special needs child, because those were all things that I did not plan on happening and I didn't get laid off because I was a bad employee, I got laid off because the the, the financial bubble burst, and suddenly J.P. Morgan Chase had to lay off 6,336 people in one day in Columbus, Ohio. And then we were all looking for the same types of jobs at the exact same time.
0: Well, man, that is, uh, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> and I, I know uh, I mean, my wife has had three miscarriages herself too, um, and those are tough. Those, yeah. those are really tough. And, um, it just, uh, it, it's hard to, to come back even from one, you know, and then there you are lifting off, like, you know, five, six, seven, eight, you know, 10 things that happened to you in a year.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah. You, rough year. Take,
0: uh, you take all these things, um, that happened to you uh, and you've turned them around. You know, I mean, we were talking, we were laughing, having a great time before the show, you know, um, things are good. Um, so, how do you continue to, to spread this message as, you know, you say, you know, as a mentor, as a coworker, as a boss, um, and especially as a father, um, you know, what, like what, what things do you, do you try to promote, um, to the people around you? It's like my
2: own serenity prayer, right? It's, there's a lot of things that you can't control and it's really easy to fixate on it. You know, so to new dads, I always tell the same thing. Things are not always going to work out the way that you expect them to be. And that's okay. Uh, But how you choose to respond to it, that's what makes the difference. You know, being a special needs dad is not like, it's not unlike being a regular dad, like having a typical kid. If you have a typical kid, at the end of the night, we all do the same thing. We talk our children in, we tell them that we love them, and we make sure that they're safe. And we start it all over again the next day. We just speak a different language. You complain about crappy coaches. I complain about crappy physical therapists. You complain about, you know, um, having to buy hockey equipment for your kid to play hockey. I complain about having to drop thousands of dollars on AFOs and having to buy two different size shoes for my kid. Like we have our complaints. We have our kid bullshit, (laughs) as I like to put it, right? We all have kid bullshit. It's different types of kid bullshit, right? But at the end of the day, we all handle it. And at the end of the night, we all tuck our children in and we love them all the same. And that's, that's kind of when it comes to being a dad, that's, that's kind of the thing that I try to get across. Um, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend I'm a perfect father. I'm by no means I'm not, um, having two kids has been a real struggle for me. Um, I have a hard time trying to figure out what kind of dad do I want to be? I, I, I have a tendency to either overly fixate on my special needs kid or completely ignore him and overly fixate on the, on the typical kid because he's a heck of a lot easier right now than this guy is and vice versa. My three-year-old and I did not get along at all for the first two years that he was alive. Um, and, and I beat myself up about that. And um, but that, I, but that's okay. Cause nobody's perfect. You know, we can only uh, try to be as perfect as possible. And I still have a, a lot of things that I've got to shake out. Um, but I'll get there, you know, it's just something that I wasn't prepared for and just more opportunity to change and grow.
1: Can you tell us um, right now, how are things on the work front? Things solid? Is there any? any Things are great at work. I have a
2: fantastic job. I work for an amazing company. Um, My schedule works out great for being a special needs dad. Um, I only work three days a week. Uh, Granted, it's Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. So I work 12-hour shifts overnight. Um, It's not the easiest shift for my wife, but it is the most accommodating shift for my son. Um, It allows me to get him to physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. Um, it makes getting doctor's appointments scheduled very easily. Um, I have had more time at home with my boys and, and my wife, who I'm sure is on the verge of killing me because she's not used to me being around so much, um, over the last year and a half than I've had in the last five years. Um, it's great. And it's also, I think, what has allowed Sora and I to spend so much time at the skate park. Um, because I don't work a typical nine to five, he can get off of school, 10 o'clock gets off the bus. Dad, nice day outside skate park. Yep. Let's go, mom. We're going to go to the skate park and we get in the car and we go to the skate park and we don't really have to plan around it. Um, I'm very fortunate to have that. Um, I know that the, the place that I'm in right now is because I have a wife that is very supportive, um, who puts up with my BS who puts up with the fact that she really has three children in this house and is constantly cleaning up after us. Um, uh, my wife works very, very hard so that I can have the job that allows me to do all these things. Um, I don't think people appreciate the, the the dual role that moms have to play. Um, and I find myself being in a position trying to do the same thing that she does. Uh, And she does it naturally, you know, she's naturally the caregiver and, uh, and she works, you know, she works from home. Um, and that's not typically the dad role. That's not like the, the prototypical, you know, patriarchal role, right. Is that caregiver, um, trying to do play dates and things that I don't remember my dad ever taking me on a play date with another dad, but I struggle to do that myself.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, with modern families now, um, the, you know, gender roles or familiar roles or however you want to put it um, in the family are just constantly changing. And um, I think that's an awesome thing. Um, I want to be more involved in my son's life. I want to be, you know, taking care of him as much as I can. Um, and I know that's not my strong suit. I'm definitely the the playful dad. I'm like, you want to play? I'm your guy. Like, let's do it. Let's break some stuff. Yeah. You know? <laughs> 100%. Like that's, I'm really good at playing yeah, <laughs> uh, not so good at parenting. <laughs> <sighs> well man, we, uh, we continue on, and it's uh, these conversations that, that help, because a lot of people just need to know, you know, it, it could be different for you, but at the end of the day, it's, it's really the same thing. It's love, and we just got to share it.
2: Yeah, 100 yeah, percent. And um, you know, it's having Sora taught me what empathy is, and I know that that is, for you guys, that's a really big thing. Um, and early on when Sora was first born and I would, you know, for me, it's like Prader-Willi syndrome is a one in 30,000 chromosomal defect. So I, I try to talk about it as often as possible because the only way that we can get more funding for research is for more people to know about it. And people would constantly tell me that they were sorry. And I would get angry. I would get so angry because why are you sorry? Why do you feel bad for me? Like why are you sorry? I'm not sorry? Like my wife and I miscarried five times. My son was never supposed to survive. I have this beautiful child who makes me the happiest person in the entire world. I am not sorry, and it wasn't until I had a, a good friend pull me aside and 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 tell me that, you know, I think you're interpreting that wrong. I think what people really mean to say is that must be really hard or that must be really difficult. but we But the large majority of people don't know what empathy is. They don't, they're not naturally empathetic. So they say, I'm sorry, because they don't know anything else to say. So now when people say, I'm sorry, I tell them, don't be sorry. I think what you really mean to say is, that must be very hard. And sometimes it is. But I appreciate you feeling, feeling for me. You know, so now I, I find myself correcting people more. And I now know that they're not looking down on me. They really just don't know how to express empathy. And for me, that's just another opportunity for me to teach them a lesson. They didn't even, they didn't know they needed to know, which was empathy is not shouting down from the top of a hole, It's getting down in the hole with somebody and going, yeah, it's dark down here and wet it sucks. It's gotta be really hard being down here by yourself.
1: And then hopefully taking that next step of saying, is there anything I can do? Like, what can I do? You know, yeah. maybe it's just listen, sometimes just listening, uh, sometimes giving you, for both of you, it's it's something that both people benefit from uh, exchanging stories and learning, first of all, that not everyone's life has some degree of challenge. Some people have very, very explicit challenges, and some of them are more, more, more complicated, um, right now, you're talking about shattered expectations. Uh, talk about Paris and Holland. You know, 2020 was landing. The pandemic was all of us landing in a place that we never expected to be. And, and I think one of the lessons I'm taking away from this conversation is uh, the need to keep perspective to really understand what our Um, what are really serious uh, things that we have to contend with in in our lives and prioritizing what it is we're going to really care about. Uh, Because we can't care about a lot of things that don't matter and also care about what matters most. And I'm just feeling the love that you feel for your son in such a powerful way. And I think that's, I mean, I just think that's a very, really, really inspiring thing that's got that's gonna really stick with me. I, I do want to direct people, uh, your your feed, uh, your Instagram, your you're a contributor. It's called the Arcuate
2: The Arcuate, yeah. So Arcuate. Arcuates, yeah, the Arcuates are the the uh, yeah so the stitches on the back of the jeans.
1: Okay, so it's only on the back of jeans. It's not like the stitching elsewhere on your on your no. dentist, it's the back of the jeans. Yeah
2: it's the back of jeans. Yeah it's what uh, it's what Levi's officially deemed their arcs on the back of jeans, the arcuates. Um, which originally Levi's did not have a patent on. Um, it was something that you could have stitched on. So you actually can find old pairs of Lee jeans that have basically very similar arcuate on the back of it. So uh, when Grant and I were trying to come up with uh, a name for our, our blog, <laughs> like everything that we could think of was taken <laughs> that was denim related, you know, warp and weft and, um, and et cetera. Um, and I was like, you know, like, well, what about, what about the arcuate? Like, that's how like, I spend my, my wife tells me that uh, I'm the only straight guy that she knows that stares at men's butts more than she does. <laughs> it's like, cause I'm always like, Oh, what jeans is he wearing? What's he got on? I can okay, tell by that's his butt. Hilarious. <laughs> All right. So yeah, I had to Google the first,
1: the first time I was like, I have no idea what he's talking about. And then I Googled to so tell us very, very quickly without you know checking your, your notes, who has the best ARKIT?
2: Oh man. Um, do you have a favorite? Is there the, like the definitive one? Oh, man. Uh, I think the the one that I like the most is I love flatheads. Okay. I think flathead has such a really cool arcuate that it, because if you look at it, it's an F. If you turn the pocket at the right oh, angle. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I really love the shape of that. Um, it's one that um, it's really simple. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think that one's the coolest one. You know, I think the the first one that comes to a lot of people's minds is obviously like Levi's. Um, Iron Heart has one that stands out. That's really simple and and easy to uh, to recognize. Uh, but yeah, I just I think Flathead is my favorite.
1: I also want to uh, mention that, that uh, at the Arguate, uh that you were had manufactured a pin that I m- purchased uh, off the Etsy store. It's uh, for uh, money raised uh, for study of Prater. Willie's, uh, syndrome. Uh, are you still selling the pin? Is there anything else uh, like a public service you want to tell us about supporting research?
2: Yeah. So yeah, we, we, we still have, we still have a few left. Um, so if anybody wants to pick one up, um, they're more than welcome to, um, the pin has uh, one of my favorite slogans on it, which is comfort is a slow death. Um, I feel like, um, uh, comfort is complacency, right? So when you get comfortable in your job, that means that you don't feel like you can get any better At what you're doing. If you're comfortable in your craft, you you don't feel like there's any raw room for improvement. Um, And I feel like uh, with raw denim, uh, yeah, you uh, comfort is doesn't mean quality, right? You know, jeans that are already pre broken in are not going to last a long time. They're going to wear out faster. Um, And a part of the pleasure of raw denim is dealing with the discomfort of breaking in a pair of 21 ounce raw jeans, you know, um, there's a lot of pride that comes along with it. Um, so when we were, when Grant and I were trying to come up with a pin and, and when he, it was his idea to do something for Sora, I was like, you know, I, uh, I have on my laptop, I have a sticker that I, I print out and I give to every new manager. I train that says comfort is a slow death. Like, I think that fits really well to the denim community <laughs> And I feel like it really fits in with being a special needs parent um, because you can never get too comfortable. Um, because if you're getting comfortable, then you're no longer working hard for your child. Um, and I felt like it just kind of was a great slogan. So he came up with this really great blue and gold pin uh, with our logo and the slogan on it and the uh, and stay raw on the bottom of it. So um, the proceeds for the sales of those pins all go to fund um, research for Prader-Willi syndrome. Um, and go to the Foundation for Prader-Willi Research.
0: Man, that is that is a great cause, man. And uh, yeah, those they're very rad. so uh, I definitely need to to pick one up myself too.
2: Yeah, we've got, we've got a few left. We uh, we just did a limited run of a hundred. Um, we didn't want to make too many, um, just because we wanted it to be something special. Um, and for those who have it, they can take knowledge and knowing that they're one of the select few that have um, that have chosen to help make. A difference in a child's life that they didn't know.
1: Well, I'm going to go put my pin on my denim jacket immediately. It's on my sitting on my desk at the moment. Um, comfort is a slow death, also, is a, just a reminder that we should take nothing for granted. That when we're too comfortable uh, and think we're doing such a great job as a, as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as an employer, as an employee, as a leader, etc uh comfort is a bad thing in all in in all forms we 're supposed to pay attention, and so thank you for m- reminding us because the big takeaway here for me is is just remembering to keep the focus on what matters most so Tristan, I liked you the first time we talked. I have even more respect, and my mind is a little bit kind of dazzled by the amount of perseverance and and strength and character you have and just really inspiring conversation and I'm really glad that we got a chance
2: to know you better. I appreciate it. I really uh um you know I, I I I know that um if it wasn't for Sora, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Cause I know that I would have never had to shave my beard off. I wouldn't have had to wear that mask. I wouldn't have posted that that picture um and you would have never reached out to me. You know, uh, I feel like that, that there's always connections when you look for it. Um, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, you both have given me to just ramble about myself. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but I really like talking about myself. Um, (laughs) so I will never pass up the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, and, uh, and before I go, there's, there's one other mantra that I feel has really helped me, um, through everything. And that is, easy choices, hard life, hard choices, easy life. Um the easy thing to do may be the most gratifying thing in the immediate future, but it doesn't always have the best payoff in the in the long run. The hard choice is is not always the easy one, but it's the one that in the long run will have the biggest payoff. It's to put it in simple terms, it's things like Saving money isn't easy. Sitting down and asking yourself, how much do I want to save every month? And now what can I afford? is a lot harder than going, what can I afford? And then after you've spent all your money, figuring out what you can save. Right? In the latter, you can live in a nicer apartment, drive a nicer car, have a bigger TV, spend a lot of money, and then you end up with no savings in the former, you make the decision of how much am I worth? How much do I want to save? And you sacrifice maybe living in a bigger apartment or driving a newer car or having a bigger TV. But in 10 years time, you have money in the bank. The person who didn't do that doesn't have money in the bank. That's a harder decision to make than it is to indulge yourself. And and when you really think about it, that kind of applies to a lot of things. When you when you look at celebrities, choosing to move out to Hollywood, be a waitress, go to multiple auditions, and fail over and over and over again is a lot harder than becoming an accountant. But then you suddenly get that lucky break. And now you're a millionaire. Did it take 10 or 15 years to get there? Yeah. Could it have been a lot easier to have just been an accountant for 15 years? Yeah. But with the payoff been as great? No. And I feel like that's that's kind of how I try to approach things as well. You know, the hard decision is having a job where I work 14 hours overnight and coming home Sunday and staying up all day Sunday and being zombie daddy so that the next day I can be awake and be present and be available to go to parent-teacher conferences and go to doctor's appointments and go to therapy and then Wednesday night, stay up all night so that I can reset my clock and do it all over again. It's not easy to do. It's hard, but in the long run, the payoff is going to be worth it. I hope that makes sense.
0: Totally does, man. And it's a a great way to, uh, to wrap this up, man. Um, you know, make the hard choices and then live the easy life. And, uh, You've shown us a great lesson um, in tenacity and adaptability with your story. And I just want to say thank you so much for that. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. This has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilist Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. And I'm Tristan Chamberlain. Thanks for listening.